You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenny, and I'm one of the co-founders of Nori, which is a carbon removal marketplace based in Seattle. And right up the street from us, I think only about a mile, mile and a half away, is the butchery Beast and Cleaver, which is widely regarded as one of the best butchers in the country, is a personal favorite of mine. And today I have with me Kevin Smith, who is a butcher and the founder and owner of Beast and Cleaver, and also the chef owner of The Peasant, which is their wine bar. Thanks for being here, Kevin. Thank you for uh, taking the time to to meet up and, and do this uh, over the over the phone. And yeah, it's... Uh, it's I'm I'm ready for any questions you got. So yeah, shoot away. Yeah, it sounds like I caught you on a busy morning though. You're trying to set up a dry aging facility. You got animal breakdown as the, the yeah. was closed to customers today, and you've been running around. And yeah, yeah. It, it was it's a hectic morning. Been trying to get um, all the new shelving put in in the dry age, and um, just there was uh, all the alleyways were blocked. The, Shelving units weighed about 200 pounds each, and I was trying to lift them with just my wife, and uh, there's about six of them, so that was challenging. It took a lot longer than I thought, and then as I went to set up the, the Zoom meeting with you, I realized that there was a giant garbage truck in the alleyway blocking and making a lot of noise, so we finally got there, so here we are, yeah. And here everyone thought being a butcher was a glamorous profession, and maybe they're learning otherwise now. Right, yeah, very true. I mean... I get to do a lot of really cool stuff, obviously, but a lot of the stuff I do is um, things that I don't really want to be doing, like driving around, picking up shelving units and installing them um, and dodging trucks, yeah. <laughs> so although we, although I get to do a lot of really cool stuff, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes work that is not so glamorous and is uh, not my favourite thing to do, yeah. But it's all part of owning a business, so um, I'm also happy to do it, you know. Yeah, for sure. At least there's a, there's a purpose to end state you'd like to achieve. Well, I know how I, I describe Beast and Cleaver. I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of what y'all do. And um, I know how I describe it, but how do you describe what Beast and Cleaver is as an institution? Yeah, I, I mean, foremost, we're a butcher shop, you know, um, the spine of our business is butchery. Um, and then we have an amazing restaurant. Um, and the restaurant is very symbiotic with the butchery. They they work together very closely. They create a full circle of whole animal butchery um, <clears throat> that is not possible if you don't have one or the other. So <clears throat> we couldn't have the peasant without the butchery, and we couldn't have the butchery without the peasant, um, mainly because we... Uh, lots of people are going to... Lots of butcher shops are going to struggle to sell whole carcass um, but we have a great outlet in using um, a lot of the offcuts, the, the stuff that's harder to sell, not not so much your New York strips and your, your ribeyes, but all of the, the tongue and the tail and all of that stuff. We, we use that predominantly on the peasant menu. Um, so we're a full animal butcher, full whole animal butchery with a full restaurant as well. So that's, that's how I describe Beast and Cleaver. <clears throat> It's pretty amazing, and it strikes me yeah. as unusual. When did I don't know? Well, well, you're you're from the UK, so maybe it's different there, or maybe the American process mirrors the UK's. Um, but when did awful and stranger cuts of meat, organ meats, tongue, cheek, things like this, within the United States, when did this start going 
out of fashion because seemingly everyone used to eat this way, but at least in some parts of the world, that is no longer the case. Yeah, so I mean, for my knowledge on that, it's it goes back as far as World War Two, and I, and I, I could be wrong on this. This is the stuff I've read and observed, and I'm sure there's different places in the country that um, this doesn't apply to. But my general observation is that after World War Two, um, lots of canned products started happening, um, production of whole animal stuff gradually started going down, and everybody wanted to speed up where they were going. Um, you know, if you look back at menus um, from pre-World War Two, pre-World War One, you see a lot more of these amazing cuts, not just from meat, but from fish as well, and uh, wild animals, game, all that stuff was appearing on menus. Um, but gradually, um, everything's been sped up, you know, like, you just have to look at turkeys these days, you know, um, people want to deep fry their turkeys because you can do it in an hour or two, um, rather than taking the time to, you know, slow roast it and baste it and, um, and all of that is huge to me, you know, to, to take the time to do things properly. And that's kind of how Beast and Cleaver, um, the ethos of what we do, you know, we, we don't rush things. We do, we wait for things to be ready. Um, so in terms of your question, when did Opal start appearing in, in the US? When did it when did it go out of fashion? I think it went out of fashion after World War II um, uh, because the processing of everything got sped up and became, um, you know, it started going into the commodity world a lot, a lot quicker, is, is my opinion on it. Um, does that make any sense, what I'm saying there, Ross? I think so, yeah. And uh, I'm wondering if people maybe also in, in parallel fashion don't necessarily see being a butcher as being an artistic pursuit, meat is seen as a commodity, something that's already been partitioned mm -hmm. long before they reach it. <clears throat> One of the fun things about coming into Beast and Cleaver is seeing you have a lot of really passionate people in there working. And it isn't just about cutting yeah. strips and stuff like that too, but there's strange terrines and mousses and sausages that are things that you could not mm -hmm. just buy at Safeway. There's artistry involved. For sure. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're doing things the old school way. You know, we're making, firstly, we're breaking down animals without a hand, with just a handsaw. We don't have a bandsaw in there. Everything is done, um, straight up with knives and, and a handsaw, um, which I don't know any other place that does that. Um, I choose to do that very simply for a couple of reasons. One is I hate cleaning bandsaws and they're really uh, a nightmare to clean. Um, I've worked with them for years. So I decided that I wanted to teach people how to use um, a handsaw and become more efficient and skillful rather than just having the ability to throw everything through a bandsaw. Um, now, it's a lot more work and it's a lot physically harder, um, but it attracts the people who really care, the artisanal butchers, to come in and, and learn to do it. Um, at times, I wish we had a bandsaw, you know, to, to chop bones up and, and things like that. But after three and a half years of being open, we, we don't need one. And um, that in itself is a skill, you know, to... You know, so when like an apprentice butcher comes in or, or a cook who's learning to be a butcher, once they start getting into our program of, uh, of whole animal butchery, 
I'll start them on pigs and I'll go over the very basics of how we break down pigs. And then after a month or so, they'll get to start working on beef. Um, and then usually they end up coming back to lamb at the end because um, lamb can be, um, people think it's the easiest, but it's actually, I think, the most tricky to, to get right because it's, uh, there's, there's not much room for waste on a, on a lamb. Pigs, you can, um, you can u- utilize different cuts in so many different ways. Um, beef is a huge one for, for people who've never butchered to learn. You know, it can take anything from six months to a year and a half to get really, really good at it. Um, but we try and put people through a program of, of butchery. Um, then on, on top of that, we have like a pastry program in there, which I show everybody how to make four or five different types of pastry. Um, and that all starts folding into place. When you start realizing that we're taking the kidney fat from beef and the leaf lard from pork, and then that gets turned into pastry, and then that pastry starts going into the case, into meat pies and pate on fruit and all these different creations that we make. That's when people who work at the shop, it starts to click for them. We're not just chopping up meat. We're not just buying pastry out of a, you know, out of a local bakery. We're, we're doing everything from scratch. So um, they're, just, they're just two of the small things that we do that, that are huge. And that really does attract, um, I think, some of the best cooks in, the country, in, in Washington to come and work for us. So you said that we have a really passionate team in there. It's part of my job to instill passion into them and um, fill them with excitement every day because, you know, that's how I feel about it. I, I feel so passionate that um, we're fortunate enough to have these amazing animals that are local. And, you know, we've, we've gotten all this really nice press and it's all really generous and kind. But there's a thought process behind absolutely everything that we do from start to finish from the animals where they're sourced from to how they look in the case it's um beeston cleaver is a it's almost like a culinary school in the way i approach it we have different programs you know there's like the cooking programs there's the butchery programs the pastry programs there's a dessert program (laughs) it's it's intense in there so um yeah does does that answer some of that question russ Oh, definitely. Yeah. And I, I love the pate on crude and I have a note in here to talk about it. Cause that's one of my favorite things that you have, where it is this combination of esoteric types of, of meat that are, you know, baked yeah. in pastry. And it's one of those things too, where like, maybe you could find that in some country French mm-hmm. butchery or like charcuterie, I guess you could say, yeah. um, but where else do you even find yeah. something? Like maybe you go to like Dario Cecchino's place or something like that, or Cecchini's place. Mm-hmm. That's, that's where you'd find it. Yeah. But um, where else can you find yeah. something else in the States? Does it even exist except for you guys? Yeah. Um, I mean, we're really proud of the Pate on Crew. It's something I've been working on for eight or nine years, maybe maybe longer than that. And um, about four years ago, I went up to Canada to, to hang out with a, a chef I know up there who's the chef at St. Lawrence up in Vancouver. And my pastry skills were good. And, and then he... He, he, I spent a day with, with Colin up there, the, the head chef, and he showed it. And I, I think his pate is some of the best in the world. And he, he spent the day taking my level up another level. And within one day, my skill level went from 
what I thought was really good to actually being really good. And um, that's not me being being big headed. It's 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 the truth. You know, we we make excellent tape on crew, and um, I owe I owe a lot of that to to Colin up in uh, St Lawrence in Vancouver for for teaching me that. And now I teach everyone in the shop how to to make those things. And I mean, they take the way we make them. They take five to seven days to make. Um, they're not they're, they're like labors of love. You know, they they anyone who gets to work on those in the shop knows that they're under a little bit of pressure because we have such high expectations for the pate on crew and and we're kind of known for it you know people travel to come and get the pate on crew so um but yeah you know that's a great way to utilize um going back to your previous question things like livers and and offal and like beef tongue and um, all of the offcuts, you, you're not going to find like a, uh, a beef tenderloin in the in the um, pate on crew. You're going to find uh, ground chicken livers, ground pork livers, um, fatty pork belly, all the stuff that you know people don't really want to buy. The skill of making the pate on crew is taking all of that um, stuff that's not so trophy driven and turning it into something that tastes better than anything else that, that we can make. Um, and that takes a lot of skill and a lot of patience and a lot of practice. Um, but it's, again, it's, it's something that I am so passionate about with, with the pate on crew. And um, yeah, it's, it, I mean, just from making the pastry, the, the pastry, we, we use a 25% beef fat with 75% butter, lots and lots of eggs and flour and uh, cornstarch. Really unusual pastry to use. Um, and to teach cooks who have been line cooking for years um, how to to do that is it's really interesting because they don't generally have that skill set here is what I'm noticing. A lot of the, well, I wouldn't say a lot, I'd say all of the cooks who have come to me don't have any real good pastry skills so getting them out of their comfort zone and the same for the butchers too um getting them out of their comfort zone and having them roll out pastry dough and make it from scratch you see how um challenging it is in the beginning for them but then they make one or two and they start to get this passion going through them they see that it's achievable that it's not like this yeah it's like a, it's kind of like a work of art when it's done and it's perfect but it's not unachievable for them to reach um, that level. And, you know, we've got loads of people at the shop now who make them, make excellent ones that go in on the peasant menu and go in the, in the charcuterie case um, just about every day. So um, I only, I only make them myself now, maybe um, once or once or twice every, I'll probably make one or two every two or three weeks now. So I'm not, I'm not the driving force so much behind those anymore. So that's a little bit on pate on crew. I, I could talk about it all day. So, um, unless you want me to, you should probably ask me another question. <laughs> oh, it's, it's my personal favorite. I, obviously, there's so much love that goes into it. It seems like one of the most labor-intensive things that you could make. And I love the ethos of it, too. That's yeah. true. It did not be wasteful. Yeah. What, what happened? We're like, yeah. at some period, we all decided that, like, filet mignon, we should just optimize meat making just for, for that. And then all restaurants just wanted only yeah. these cuts and... It didn't even taste better necessarily. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. You know, it's like I, I again, not, I don't have any proof for this because I don't think there is. But 
my opinion on it is that it goes back to after World War Two when we started seeing supermarkets carrying all of the prime cuts of beef like um, New York strips and uh, tenderloins and it became oversaturated and by the 80s and 90s all you could get in supermarkets would be um, those cuts you know along with like a, a bone-in chuck roast um, the back leg of beef never got any love and it still doesn't get any love in any butcher uh, in any um, supermarket these days you go in I go into various supermarkets these days just to see what's going on and their prices are a dollar or two a pound cheaper than what we are but the quality of the meat is not is not in the same realm of, of ours and the cuts that they offer are like maybe five or ten different ten if you're lucky I, I don't think I've ever seen ten but five five or six main cuts of beef you know you go into any whole animal butcher shop across the country that's, that's doing things um, the right way and you'll see cuts that most people aren't familiar with unless you're an actual butcher um, especially things from the back leg you know we we really started analyzing why is that back leg regarded as, as like crap and tough um, and and it's not it's some of the best steaks on the whole animal come from that back leg you just got to know how to get them to what they should look like and how to cook them um, and you know we've kind of turned that into our really strong part of the butchery now is, is the beef leg um, you know it's, it's really easy to sell tenderloins and ribeyes New Yorks etc but you take um, you take the top round or the terrible name we have here in America for it is London Broil <laughs> and it's you know that has got a reputation of being thick tough steak that like literally eats like leather so you know it, for stars it doesn't exist in london and it should never be broiled um, <laughs> so we took that and and looked at it looked at that muscle and realized that it's it's extremely lean so what do you want to do with an extremely lean steak you don't want to slow cook it under the broiler that's going to make it it's going to make it terrible you know so we started playing around with it, cutting it a specific way so the grains are running in one direction. And we sear it almost like ahi tuna and baste it in butter and slice it thin. And it's better than a tenderloin. And it's four times less the cost. <laughs> you know, you can pay $38, $36 for a tenderloin. You can pay $12 a pound for the London Royale. And I would genuinely choose the London... We call it London Royale now. So have a little fun with it. Um rather than the London Broil. And I would choose that over most of the main cuts any day of the week. And it's, again, really sustainable for um, for the whole animal program. Uh, it's another cut that we use for steak tartare on the restaurant. Again, it's got no fat on it. So it's delicious when you slice it up, chop it, and add your shallots and your tarragon and whatever to it. Um, yeah, again... There's so many muscles on the back leg that that's a, just this one example of, of how to um, get away from those trophy-driven cuts. Yeah, I hope that answers that question. Yeah, and more and more to come here. Um, I, I love the ethos yeah. trying not to be wasteful with meat. I think you should respect animals that you're you're eating. But I had this thought that challenged that idea a little bit, which is that 
is not the industrial process for making meat incredibly efficient. I feel like every single part of the animal that goes into bone meal or into gelatin or into animal feed mm -hmm. or like is yeah. small scale butchery, even what you're doing sounds incredibly efficient. And there's a lot of love that is probably mm -hmm. not present at the larger scale. Thousands and thousands of animals a day. They, you know, no disrespect to anybody who, who works in those places, but um, they're not doing things the way I would choose to do them. So I can't say because I haven't worked in one of those places. I've visited a couple and, and you know, done some research on it. Um, the, firstly, the skill of those butchers is unbelievable. They are so efficient, so fast. Um, a lot quicker than I am because they're doing the same thing over and over day after day. Um, and that is its own insane skill set that I have a huge amount of respect for. Um, so in terms of speed, I would say those workers there who have been there for however many years are way beyond my skill level with what they do. However, it's a different skill level that I have. Um, and I always think of myself as the captain of the ship. I, I steer the ship in any direction I want it to go. I, I'm not aiming to do what industrial scale butchery does. Um, that's totally not in my realm and I don't want to go there. So we try and distinguish ourselves from supermarkets and the industrial stuff by having things done um, in such a way that it makes the animal, we, we try and honor the animal by utilizing every single part of it. Now, do the industrial places do that? Um, probably, they probably don't have um, too much waste. I don't know what their waste is compared to ours. Um, so I can't speak for what they have in terms of waste. Um, but I know that we have, on a whole beef carcass, for instance, we have about a 30, to 35% yield loss from uh, fat and bones. And a lot of places would lose that fat and bones. And so they're down to like a 65% usable yield. Um, we, we take all the bones, like practically every bone from the, from the beef carcass and the pork and the lamb, we chop them up and roast them and turn them into the most amazing demi-glosses, stocks that we sell in the case, um, and a lot of that stuff goes on to the peasant menu. Um, you know, our beef uh, demi-gloss takes four to five days to make. It's constantly simmering in the back pot. Um, the, the bones from the pigs with the pig's feet and the head, uh, the skull is turned into aspic. Again, a four or five day process. Um, the fat, the usable fat, not the stuff with sinew on it, we keep all of that and that goes towards pastries and sausages. So our actual yield loss is probably closer to 15% um, on a whole carcass. Um, so I don't know what the yield loss on a um, industrial facility would be. I, I can't say we can that we're better than them or worse than them, but I can say that we have about 15% yield loss on an animal, and that's that's very very good. I know that for a fact. Um, the only stuff we don't use is is the tough sinew and the cartilage. Um, and everything else is, is getting used uh, every week too. So, you know, that's, um, that's something that we're proud of too, yeah.
Yeah, I'm trying to contrast against uh, animals that might come through the butchery uh, department at Whole Foods, even ones that are uh, grass-fed and whether they're grass-finished or, or grain-finished here. Um, no matter yeah. how they do the program, do you think coming through a smaller butcher shop like Beeson Cleaver, do you think that does enough to ensure that their their lives may have been better uh, than coming through a larger institution? Yeah. Do you think small is almost inherent yes. for animal treatment? Yes, I do. One one hundred percent on on that question. I mean, the, some of the farms we work with have as little as like twenty to fifty animals. Uh, some of them, I think, the most one of the biggest farms we work with has got about two and a half thousand animals, which is incredibly small. Um, we also know the date of the animals. We know exactly what breed it is. We know exactly where every farm is. We know the slaughter dates. We know the weights, and we know what it's been fed. How do we know that? Because we visited the farms. We work closely with the farmers. Um, you know, for instance, we have uh, a Black Angus English Baldy cross in there at the moment. It's fed about 80% grass and it's finished on like a, a, a barley that's grown on the farm that it comes from. So that is extremely unique. You're not going to find that in a supermarket um, because they're coming from um, much, much larger herds and they're not going to be fed on a, a barley that's grown on the specific farm. Um, it's very likely that they're going to be fed um, uh, any, you know, okay, if it's 100% grass-fed, that's, that's great. Um, that brings up a, a whole different subject of um, what people perceive of, of a grass versus grain and why is grain bad for you? Um, it's actually not bad for you. Um, it's you know, the stuff that is bad for you is the stuff that's getting processed with so many chemicals and being sprayed with pesticides and um, traveling all around the country to get to one specific farm. But, you know, we live in the barley belt here and barley's been growing here for centuries. It's a natural part of the land. Why would the animals not benefit from eating natural barley? Um, that to me is... Uh, is really interesting um and also 100 percent grass-fed animals I'm, I'm just going to be honest the majority of them don't taste um they don't have the the same texture they don't have the same taste as animals that have some grain going through them um so you know we use this weird analogy where we get these like we've seen these grass-fed animals come in 14 to 16 months old and they they don't taste good they're, they don't taste good they're slaughtered too young um they don't have any development of flavor and the meat is tough that's because they haven't had time to develop they haven't um now if it was a four or five year old grass-fed animal and we do get those in they can be outstanding some of the best animals we've ever had um but they're also coming from small farms so it's it's easy to see the difference from something that is going to be in a local supermarket that's apparently 100% grass-fed and you buy it and then you compare it to something that we know is a three-and-a-half to five-year-old grass-fed animal, it, it, there's no comparison. You, you can't compare those animals. It's, um, yeah, it's completely different, different um, flavor, taste, um, and 
again thinking more about the grain you know people are a lot of these animals that are going into supermarkets are getting fed all of this terrible corn and soy and all of these things that are being like um messed around with with gmos you know um genetically modified stuff that's going on to into the animals that then gets into our bodies the stuff that we work with doesn't have any of that in it we we know it because we again we we work with the small farmers and um that's something that, again that we like to keep our head up head up held high and say you know you come in here you buy less meat we're not trying to sell people loads of meat we think you should buy less meat but buy good meat it doesn't you don't need a two pound steak or a one pound steak you know probably need like four five six ounces if you if you're hungry and yeah pay a little bit more for that but know that it's doing you good it's doing the environment good it's uh, helping out the local farmers and it's creating that circle of um symbioticness where everything is um coming together in for for our health basically yeah yeah, Does that make some sense for us? Or was I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you always make sense. You don't need to check with me. I think, I think you're sounding. <laughs> I know he's a little controversial, but I read Pat Lafrida's book, Glorious Beef, and he was claiming in there too that he used to try to sell grass grass finished uh, meat, but his chef clients no longer yeah. wanted it anymore just because it didn't taste good. And I think in some ways, consumers they care so much, but they've gone too far where they think just all grain finishing or feeding grain to animals at all yeah. is going to be bad. But um, at least in terms of your yeah. like experience of the meat that you're getting out of this animal, which if you're going to kill an animal and eat it, it should taste mm-hmm. really good. And if it's just grass finished, yeah. but it isn't, it isn't left to mature as yeah. you see and that nuance is not present. Like, are you actually honoring the animal? Yeah. Maybe not. Like maybe you've just been ideological yeah. in a way. I think so. And I mean, like, again, my knowledge on a lot of the 100% grass-fed that's not tasting so well is that the animals are, like, slaughtered under 18 months old. Um, and that's on the high end. From from what I've been told, they're, like, anything from 14 to 16 months. Um, so they haven't had time to develop. And the other really important thing is people don't know how to cook that type of animal. It's not going to be cooked the same way you'd cook a prime new york strip it's a it's completely different meat so you know the generic way of like throwing it on a grill and cooking it to to medium it's going to completely destroy a grass-fed animal that's uh, um 16 to 18 months old um it's going to toughen up immediately there's not enough um there's not and and all the other huge thing is they don't hang those animals for long enough um you know we we try and age our animals for 21 to 28 days minimum um, and a lot of the stuff we're at is 35 days upwards. Um, so we're developing flavor there, drawing moisture out and getting much, much more umami flavors going on. Um, those other animals are 14 days. Uh, so they're full, aged for 14 days. Then they get vacuum sealed, put in a package, um, and then the customers take them home and they buy them from a supermarket and they realize that they don't taste great. Of course they don't taste great. They've been sitting in a vacuum sealed bag in their own juices for, I don't know, week, two weeks, three weeks, whatever it is. Um, yeah, it's, it's quite, it's, to me, it's just plain common sense. Like you can't have a 16 to 18 month grass fed animal that's um, 
going to taste anywhere near as well as a uh, three and a half to five year old grass fed animal that's actually strolling around eating grass having a great time um you know it's and the weight of one of those grass fed animals that we get in can be like 900 to 950 pounds they're huge but they've lived a long long life for a cow um the other animals i'm guessing are around 650 to 750 pounds so you know you're talking a couple of hundred pounds in difference and um that's that's kind of a lot when you think about it like that oh definitely it is yeah um one of the other claims that pat lafrida makes in his book that i thought was interesting was he he thinks he's kind of hard on the small butchers out there and the fetishization <clears throat> of small is better and he thinks that the safety is oftentimes much greater at the industrial scale, given all the USDA inspections and stuff like that, that maybe not as required for what you do. Do you think he's he's made a wrong turn with that assessment? Um, I haven't read it, so I, I I would like to read it now that you've said that. Um, um, I know the large. So no, I don't. I don't actually know if he's correct on that one. I mean, like. The places that we work with are always under USDA inspection. Um, that's kind of a given. They have to be under USDA inspection. Um, so, I, again, I'm not visiting these large-scale giant facilities. I, I'm sure they're spotlessly clean um, because there's probably lots of USDA inspectors there every day. Um, but the places that we work with are very clean too, and there's inspectors there. So... I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't really have an answer for that one other than that I can speak for the places that we work with that they are very clean and we know what we're getting. And um, I, I would steer myself away from anything in the giant realms of Tyson and all those other big places that are, you know, shipping meat all over the country from one state. <laughs> Not, yeah, it's kind of like... Um, okay, you're focusing on something being really clean and everything else, but you're kind of missing the bigger picture of how unsustainable it is and how bad a lot of that meat is and how it tastes, you know? So, yeah, that, that would be my opinion on that. <clears throat> Do the animals that are slaughtered or <laughs> the USDA mobile facilities or, or, or something else, how do the animals reach you? So they're not slaughtered under a mobile facility. They're slaughtered at, um, there's four main processing facilities in Washington. One, a lot of our animals come from um, pure, pure country uh, in um, Moses Lake, Ephrata. Um The mobile slaughter facilities are basically trucks that drive around and will do six to ten animals <clears throat> um, at, at a time. Um, we don't work with them very often um they they do a great job and they they slaughter some animals for us on on the islands <clears throat> so like the san juan islands there's a uh, a mobile slaughter facility that does a lot of that work and we get some animals from them um but the place that we go where most of our stuff is pure country farms um and heritage meat out in rochester who are going through a few changes at the moment but those are our main two processing facilities where the animals are slaughtered, uh, hung, and then taken to various shops. Hmm. And those are USDA uh, supervised facilities? They are, yes, yes. Huh. I'm wondering who, yeah. 
who Palafrida then is referring to are these small butchers who maybe if they're not crossing state lines, they don't require as much USDA supervision under the Commerce Clause. Uh, yeah, I, don't, I don't even know. I remember, I remember a few years ago when I was there's there's some real uh, like unclear regulations and laws um, with that stuff. If it's not slaughtered under USDA inspection, it can't go to a commercial butcher shop. So anything that comes to a commercial butcher shop like us has to be slaughtered under USDA regulation. If it's not slaughtered under USDA regulation, I believe it can be sold at farmers markets to um, from the owners of the farms. Now I could be wrong on that. It was something very similar like that. I do know that USDA inspection has to happen for it for us to uh, to receive it. Um, it can't be. Um, it can't just be like a, a mobile unit going around, killing it, and then taking it to us. That would be really great if it could, because um, there's so many beef farms out there that um, I, I believe there's over 1,850 beef farms in Washington alone. And, I mean, we have access to maybe five, you know. So um, one of the big problems here is the logistics of there not being enough slaughter facilities in, in Washington. You know, how do these out of those 1,850 beef farms, how many of them are amazing? You know, and there's, um, my guess is loads of them because I, <laughs> I drive out and, and look at them and I see the animals strolling around. But that meat is, um, I, I don't quite know where that meat's going. Um, it's certainly not coming to us. Um, but yeah, I know um, there's, there's a lot of butchers here who wish there was more USDA slaughter facilities. Um, to to help the small farms get their product out there more. <clears throat> On our way out of yeah. the show, I have this I have this uh, supposed origin story for you. Given that you're you're from across yeah. the pond here, which is that you ate at St. John, and then just Fergus Henderson yeah. blew your mind, and then that just led to a career in butchery. Is that instinct onto anything? Uh, partially. I mean, I've been to St. John maybe. 30 times. I've, uh, I used to live 25 minute walk from St. John and I'd stroll over the bridge and get lunch there. It was an amazing place. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's certainly an influence on my food and my cooking. Um, I think one of the most interesting things was he was an architect for many years and then changed trade and became a, a chef and started doing amazing and <clears throat> that's that was really inspiring to see somebody change careers and uh, become successful at it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, uh, so yeah, he, uh, Fergus Henderson is, is, I think he's an inspiration to anyone who cooks. Um, you know, the, the nose to tail stuff he got really famous for. He coined that phrase and um, it's uh, taken off worldwide. Uh, we, we take a lot of inspiration from St. John and, and a lot of other restaurants too. And, and, um, a lot of medieval food is where I get my inspiration from. Um, but yeah, St. John is, is uh, definitely a pilgrimage of mine and we'll be visiting there in June again this year. So um, I look forward to, to seeing what they're coming up with. Yeah. Do you have any advice for people who, well, obviously if you're in Seattle or nearby, go to Beast and Cleaver right now. Why haven't you already been? It's amazing. But for people who are maybe um, outside of uh, your your commercial range, what should they be doing with their meat consumption? 
Yeah, I mean, obviously people, you know, there's there's a cost thing. I mean, not everybody has the ability to, to spend um, the the money that's required to buy this amazing meat. So that's always challenging, you know. Um, so I, I always wish we could do something with people who are not as well off as others. Um, so my, my advice is eat less meat, but eat good meat. <laughs> Would be would be my advice. Um, I think that's really um, really true. You know, just get two or three pieces of meat a week if that's what you can afford, and um, get pay pay for what you get rather than buying lots of stuff that's uh, filled with chemicals and it's going to cause you some um, <clears throat> inflammation and other stuff from you know processed foods. So yeah, eat eat less but eat good would be my advice. I think that's quite uh, sensible advice. Well, Kevin, thanks so much for being here. I'm, yeah. I'm really glad you're able to, to get this yeah. to happen. You're welcome. No, thanks. I know we've been trying to do it for a while and uh, our paths have not crossed sufficiently, but they have now. So uh, no, I, I appreciate it. And uh, thanks for inviting me on. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com, follow us on social media, and we will catch you next time.